TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is Design Matters with Debbie Milner from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Milman talks with Ken Carbone about meeting his design heroes as a young man in Europe, about his celebrated sketchbooks and journals, and about what he really thinks about his relationship with his corporate clients. You pay my fee, but I'm not working for you. I'm working for those 80 million customers that you have to deliver day in and day out. Here's Debbie Millman. Many years ago, when he was working on a project for the Louvre, Ken Carbone happened upon Paul Gauguin's journal from the time the artist was in Tahiti. It inspired Carbone to keep his own journal, and he's been drawing and clipping and pasting his way through life ever since. He's amassed an amazing collection of sketchbooks. They're full of book reviews, collages, secrets, and visual essays on historical events. Ken is also the author of Virtuoso, a portrait collection of people who are the absolute best at what they do. And he is the co-founder and creative director at Carbone Smolin, one of the world's great design firms. Ken Carbone, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So is it true that you failed every creative writing class in college? Everyone. Everyone. It was a devastating moment because uh, my teacher said, you just can't write, so stick to painting. Really? Mm -hmm. They actually said you can't write. Mm -hmm. And you got Fs? You really got Fs? This is not a dramatization or an exaggeration for shock value or a better, funnier bio. Well, I, I don't know if it was an F because at an art college, did they know what an F is? I mean, it, it was very open in terms of the way the curriculum was set up. But I do think that uh, it was very discouraging. And yet you kept writing. Uh, yes, carefully and, again, with great trepidation. <laughs> so you graduated from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But I like to say that it was the Philadelphia College of Art. It is today the University of the Arts. But um, I have an emotional connection to that, uh, that other name. And was it a direct path from college to Chermayev and Geismar? Almost. However, after college, I uh, took a detour. I had never been to Europe, and I decided to go to Europe for three months. 
figured that, who knows, I may never get there again. But the way I set it up is that I contacted all my design heroes who were in Europe at that time. Who did you contact? I contacted people at Pentagram. I contacted people at GGK, at Pirelli, uh, various studios that I thought, well, in total design was another, that I would go and visit just to practice interviewing. So you're just popping in? Well, I did send letters in advance, and I had references, but uh, it was a great experience. It was a tour through Europe through the lens of design. Did everybody that you wrote to respond and say, yes, come on over? Pretty much. I sent a kind of a funny-looking letter, which uh, was a little provocative, and that may have broken the ice a little bit. Ooh, tell us about the provocative letter. Well, it was a a single sheet of paper. Obviously, they opened the envelope, they read the letter, and then they would basically refold the same piece of paper, which was self-addressed, and send it back to me. So I got all these letters back from people because I think they thought it was kind of a novel way to uh, write a letter. So who was one of your heroes that you enjoyed even more than some of the others when you visited them? Well, I have to say that meeting Alan Fletcher was a great moment. Yes. Uh, And the funny thing is that uh, when I arrived there, my hair was down to my shoulders. I had a full beard. Uh, I didn't own a suit at the time. And I said, oh, my God, this is my first job interview. I'm going to run out and get a suit. So I did. I went to you know, Kensington Market or something and bought a suit, showed up at Pentagram's office, waiting in the lobby. And then uh, Alan comes walking down the steps in jeans, jeans and a jeans shirt. So I felt a little bit ridiculous sitting there with a suit. Anyway, he was very kind, very warm, and uh, it was a great interview. Did you continue the relationships that you began on this trek through Europe meeting your design heroes after you got back to the United States? Are you still friends with anybody that you visited back then? Well, a couple. Um, Ben Boss, another legendary designer from Total Design, offered me a job. uh, There in Europe? Yes. And I said, well, I wasn't ready to become an expat, but I was thrilled that I got a uh, job offer at Total Design. Then I went off to Switzerland. I met uh, Wolfgang Weigart and Armin Hoffman. These were great people that I have an occasion uh, corresponded with over the years. That takes a lot of guts to mm-hmm. just decide that you're going to go abroad for a year meeting your design heroes. I've actually never met anybody else that's ever done that. Well, I had a little bit of help because at the Philadelphia College of Art, my teachers were from the, the Basel School in Switzerland. So they had some weight and uh, credibility. And they were, again, the references I used to get into meet some of these people. So I worked all my way down all the way to Greece with this kind of tour through design Uh, studios. And so when you came back, what did you decide you wanted to do at that point? Was that when you went immediately to Chermayev and Geismar? I mean, that's a pretty hefty job right out of school, even if you did take a year off meeting heroes. Yeah. Well, I I did send my uh, resume around, and uh, I was being represented by uh, Rita Susingel, great uh, design rep, and I was offered a job at Ansbach Grossman in Portugal. Yes. Which is today Enterprise IG, IG, I believe. And uh, one of my uh, great teachers was working there, Steph Geispieler. But then I also got an offer to visit Chmaya from Geismar's office. And I looked around and said, this is fantastic. Then I thought, well, after three or four years of working with Steph in school, maybe I should have a break. So I, I elected to take the job offer at uh, Chmaya from Geismar. And it was a seminal moment because to be exposed to the world of design through that lens was just incredible for a young designer. So you said it was a seminal moment. You went to school ostensibly to be a painter. That was probably in the back of my mind, but I'm uh, much more practical. I was studying painting, but I had a very influential uh, mentor in my foundation program, a painter, who said to me, 
you know, I think I'm going to introduce you to Kenneth Hebert down in the uh, graphic design department. Do you know anything about graphic design? And I said no. So she walked me down there, walked me around the department. I liked what they were doing. She said to me that she felt I had kind of a style and a simplicity about my work that she thought would be very appropriate for graphic design. Before that time, I didn't even know what graphic design was. So when you discovered that graphic design was even a discipline that could be studied, did you then realize that that is indeed what you wanted to do? Well, shortly after that, I was sitting on the front steps of the college, and it was right there on a main road. And all of a sudden, coming around the corner, this huge 18-wheeler truck, bright white, a black cab, and it had one word on it, on a diagonal. And it said, Knoll, K-N-O-L-L. <laughs> yes. And I looked at that, and I said, that's what I want to do. It was so powerful in the streetscape. And I said, that's graphic design. I think I'd enjoy doing that. I find it so interesting that so many influential visionary designers didn't start out being designers. Right. Well, I mean, we were at a, I remember even in school, there was a big debate about, you know, designers and ad agencies, you know, art directors and graphic designers, commercial art, uh, art, that debate. And uh, I think there was a kind of um, a lack of knowledge about what graphic design could be. Uh, and I, I think it's come a long way, obviously, uh, for me to get an early exposure in my career of, you know, like the likes of Ivan Schmeyer and Tom Geismar and to see the many dimensions. That, that experience absolutely set the, the tone for my business today. Multidisciplinary, stylistically broad, those guys did that. And it was very influential to me as a young designer. But, you know, at that time... You know, there was illustration you could do, you could be a photographer, but the graphic design was still kind of relatively nascent. So you were hired at Chimrayev and Geismar. You got a sense of what the sort of multidisciplinary practitioner was doing. What kind of work did you do when you were there? What what logos did you work on? Because they were doing such and, and still continue to do, but at that particular time that you were there was among their heyday moments. Well, some of their big clients were like uh, IBM. They worked for clients uh, such as, uh, you know, uh, Philip Morris. These were, you know, big, big commercial clients. Uh, but they also did a lot of cultural work. Uh, they, were, they had the project of doing or the, con- the account to do the um, John F. Kennedy Library, all of the kind of architectural graphics and all of the, the, the exhibit work there up in Boston. And uh, in, in advance of making a presentation to the Kennedy family, there was a wall that you would walk past as you entered the space. And on that wall, they wanted to have that classic line from JFK's inaugural about ask not, blah, blah, blah. So, I love the ask not, blah, 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 right. yada, yada, yada. Right. Like, like we can all hear it in our <laughs> right. heads. But I can never get the sequence right. Um, but uh, I basically, with press type, one oh. shot only, oh my had to God. get that absolutely perfect on this kind of paper rendering of that wall, painstakingly pressing down each letter, absolutely well-spaced. That was pretty exciting. You remember things like this. Another thing is I was in the back room one day sorting slides, and I all of a sudden I hear this voice behind me, kind of with a French accent saying, and uh, what are you doing? And I turn around, and it's Jacques Cousteau. Oh, my God. Who was in the office because, believe it or not, at one time in the early 70s, they were considering turning Radio City Music Hall into an aquarium. Wow. And Chaimaev and Geismar had one of the contracts to do a feasibility study. So Cousteau was in the office. So these were 
great moments in my early uh, beginnings as a graphic designer. So if you had to take away one thing that you learned that influenced you more than anything else when you were working at Chermayev and Geismar, what would it be? I think it's kind of see design with a very broad lens. Keep kind of very nimble stylistically, be intellectually curious, uh, think it's all great. Don't kind of make uh, distinctions about, well, I don't do this or I don't do that. It's all design. And I got a great exposure there from two-dimensional design, branding, logo development, posters, advertising, packaging. It was all there. So for me, that was a very exciting introduction to the world of graphic design. So in a speech that you gave last year titled Dialogue, The Whole Truth and Nothing But the Truth About a Life in Design, Mm -hmm. you offered 10 helpful hints for the strong-willed. And the first was... Design is the best career for the curious. So I have two questions about this. First, why hints only for the strong-willed? And why is design the best career for the curious? Well, I think that uh, uh, design, if you do it at a certain level, if you want to embrace it at a very large scale, it takes a lot of muscle, artistically, intellectually, emotionally. So I think you need to have a certain personality, a certain will to give the clients what they absolutely need. A long time ago, I decided that's my mission, to give them what they need, and it's not always what they want initially. Okay. So you have to have that will to kind of push forward. The other thing about the curiosity part is that if you're going to work multidimensionally and multidisciplinary, you have to see the world with a very wide lens. I mean, you have to be interested in much more than design. Design is just the, a small aspect of the world, and which is, happens to be very fascinating. But it's the thing that's, it's, for me, it's always been the, the door opener to a larger world. And again, working with a broad range of clients in one day, uh, you know, maybe I'm working with a banking client. So I have to kind of understand and appreciate the world of banking. In the same day, I could be working with uh, an art museum. So I have to have an appreciation of what that museum's mission is. Later in the day, um, maybe I'm working with a, a manufacturer and have to understand the practicalities of manufacturing. So, And I love that aspect of design, that it just opens all these doors if you have a curious mind. So let's talk a little bit about the need for some muscle as a designer and giving a client what you think they need. I have often talked about the conundrum facing those that work in the design discipline, primarily because we are dealing with clients that don't know how to do what we do, so therefore need a specialist. But yet, more than most other disciplines, consultatory disciplines, they often feel completely comfortable weighing in on what we're doing, advising us on what we're doing, and editing and censoring what we end up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, one probably wouldn't do that as much with a lawyer or a doctor. So when you talk about giving your clients what they need as opposed to what they want, how do you navigate through those waters? Well, often it starts by rewriting the brief. So a client would come to you and they'd have a brief, and that brief might be what the criteria for success is? or Well, one of the things is I always kind of try to get to an understanding with a client that you pay my fee, but I'm not working for you. And do you tell them that? Not exactly those words, Okay, but that's what I'm thinking. You pay my fee, but I'm not working for you. I'm working for those 80 million customers that you have to deliver 
day in and day out. So that kind of starts a different kind of dialogue. It actually puts me in the position of being real counsel. You know, the, for me, there are three things that make a great client. Courage, collaboration, and commitment. And it's hard to get that in one client. Yes, it is. Okay, so I try wherever possible early on in the relationship to find a way to get this kind of not you and me, but it's an us relationship. And those are always the best types of relationship to get them to understand that, you know, if you've hired me to do a hotel branding, I know who you're trying to reach. So let me brand directly to them. So it's a kind of a, a little bit of a leapfrog over the client. But in the end, it's really for their benefit that I know how to brand to those people to get them to come into your hotel. It's a delicate balance in not looking down on them, not saying you don't know how to do your job. But I like to get to the point where, where let's, let's respect each other's expertise and knowledge base. So you and Leslie Smolin, your partner, mm-hmm. you have been together for 35 years. Right. And you create architecture, books, museums, and I'm talking about identities and Mm -hmm. collateral materials for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're talking Mm -hmm. about Tiffany's. We're talking about the W Hotel. We're talking about the Louvre. Mm -hmm. How do you manage a relationship, a design collaboration, a design partnership for 35 years and keep it fresh? Well, in terms of the business relationship, I have to say there's like basically two things, trust and aligned ambitions. When we established that a long time ago, that we would trust each other, even though we have very often extremely different paths to a solution, we almost always arrive at the same destination. So the part of that is the trust. Okay, God, I can't stand that color. Why are you picking that color? (laughs) And then, you know, you negotiate it down the line. You realize, you know, she was right. And the other thing is line ambitions from the business standpoint. You know, you don't want a partner that's into uh, a high-life high uh, lifestyle, you know, that needs planes and, and sailboats if you don't. So we are very aligned in terms of what we think or, you know, we value in terms of what the business can bring to us. Do you have different roles and responsibilities within the organization? Do you both do design? Do you both do the finances? Well, thank God I have Leslie as a partner. First of all, I know nothing about money. I like to spend it, but I hate to make it. <laughs> I don't believe that, and, Ted Carbone. Uh, uh, I like to spend money, but, I, you know, it's the making of the money that I just get, you know, it, emotionally I'm not there. But Leslie likes to make it and spend it. And she knows <laughs> how she, – she is really the business head of, the, of, of our company. You know, I tease her because very early on when she joined me as a senior designer, she likes to remember that I said, I'm hiring you because you have a great portfolio, plus you can type – and you know accounting. So she started with you as a designer, and then you became partners. Yes, that's right. Now, there's a couple of other quotes that I want to share with you that you've said that I I would like to get some elaboration on. Um, One is this. uh, There is a moment during every branding presentation I give when I offer something enormously valuable for free. I tell clients to write down what is essentially the formula for successful branding employed by the best brands in the world. With their undivided attention and pens in hand, I summarize this formula for them in three words. Unify, simplify, amplify. Well, we often work with companies that, let's just say, they don't have deep brand management skill. Okay, we work with companies that sometimes when we begin the relationship, there is a, an element of disarray, even at the top. 
uh, we do a lot of kind of rebranding. It's, we don't do much at the kind of startup level. And very often we're brought in in periods of transition with a company. You know, we were great. Now we're not so great. You know, the CEO left. Now we have someone new, that kind of thing. So that first element about Unify is absolutely essential. If we can't get everybody on the same page, it's a non-starter. And every time we have a relationship where we have that, that mess at the top or there's no consensus, the project is just a bear from day one. So we try very hard to get everyone on the same page and that kind of with a unified vision about who they are, what they believe, and why do they think it's worthwhile. How do you do that? I mean, if you're talking about a big disarray, an organization that's in turmoil, how do you bring them together to have a common vision? Well, we try wherever possible, absolutely, to work at the top. And we know that sometimes that's not possible. But what we try to do is at least negotiate with our main client, let's say a uh, communications manager or something like that, that we will be a great asset to that person if we have this kind of access. I basically say, look, we're grown-ups. We know how to present ourselves in the C-suite. So we have to have that access. And it'll really work for you in the end. But we have other kind of drills. We have other exercises that we do where we have to bring a lot of people together. We recently did a, a rebranding, which is launching uh, later this month. And I think we had 70, almost 80 people involved in terms of stakeholders. That's a lot of people to kind of get on the same page. We have a, an exercise we call green lighting, which is basically a interactive exercises with groups of people and we present them stimuli in order to get reactions back, and then we align the reactions and you know, to build that kind of consensus. It's very fast, very effective, and we get great results from that. Then when we present that up the chain, we say, this is what 70 people in your company said. This is where they're aligned. We want you to do this exercise, or we want to interact with you to see how you're aligned with them. That's absolutely essential. That must be fascinating. Yeah, and... Uh, Doing this exercise is one of my favorite things to do in the whole company because it's quick and we get such effective results in the end. Do you find that the senior management is more often aligned? or It's a win-win in any dimension because if the CEO goes through the same exercise and he's not aligned, then it's clear there's a problem. Right. If he or she is aligned, it's great. You know, so you have your answer. Either way, you have an answer. So simplify. You talked about unification. Now we're up to simplification. How do you get organizations to believe in simplification, buy into simplification, and engage in simplification? Well, first I start by saying um, we have to make it simple and not simplistic. That's a very clear distinction I try to establish early on. Uh, We don't want to dumb it down. We want to have whatever you're trying to say to your various audiences we want to do it in shorthand, but we don't. it has to be rich in terms of its, its content and its impact. So whatever you stand for, whatever you believe in, we now have to translate that into a message of some sort. I'm not talking about a tagline, but I'm talking about a belief that is then articulated in the right words so that people can understand it and embrace it. But it has to be absolutely authentic, and it has to be – you have to know that there's no smoke and mirrors in it. And best of all, your customers become ambassadors for your brand. Because they've been able to say, oh, I'm a loyal fan of X because every product they, they make is innovative. It's simple to use. You know, they understand. They can start to understand what the company is really about. And then they can clearly and in simplified language build on that. And they become ambassadors for, uh, for those companies. 
how often do you have to arm wrestle your clients into being more authentic? Or is it something that you vet at the very beginning? Well, I would say that um, if it's a client that doesn't have, let's just say, a stellar um, offering in some way, we say, let's put our best foot forward. Okay, sometimes companies, the design or the rebranding is not necessarily going to turn them around on Wall Street. But at the same time, you want to put your best assets forward and then you build on it. It becomes a very good platform to go forward. Do you ever turn down clients, turn down work? Just did this this morning. Really? Well, Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you're willing to reveal, but how and why? (laughs) (laughs) I won't say who, but it was uh, a project that was, um, it was a a signage project. And I basically, uh, I could read between the lines in the RFP that it was going to be a budget job, that it looks from the way the RFP was written, that there was going to be a lot of politics. So in about three minutes, I said, this is not for us. So speaking of signage, mm-hmm. I believe that you did all of the signage for the Louvre. Right. We won an international competition to do that. How do you win an international competition? What did you have to do to win that competition? I think that uh, part of it was that we were very prepared uh, for the presentation. It was a presentation in Paris. There were seven competitors. I think I was third or fourth, and I remember arriving in this grand ballroom at, uh, at the Louvre where the presentations were being made. And as the door opened, seven gentlemen walked out. They were all like, uh, you know, double my height. And I looked at these guys and they looked like winners. Uh, There was a translator there. It was a a jury of about 20 people. And so it was kind of intimidating. Wow. And shortly after the presentation began, I realized that the translator was not doing a very good job with my presentation. Now, I had some knowledge of French and I paused and I said, do you mind... uh, J'aimerais continuer en français, la présentation. And the president of the committee looked over at me, paused, and he said, voici, like continue. And at that point, I started to do the presentation in French. I said, what do I have to lose? That's what's going in the back of my head. I'm not going to win this. You know, it's going to go to a French firm, but I might as well do the best I can. Um, after that presentation, one of the architects from IMP's office came over to me and whispered in my ear. He said, that was the best thing you could have done. You know, and then I learned later that they kind of said, whoever does this project is going to require a lot of courage. And Monsieur Carbon demonstrated he had the courage to do that. So I think, you know, they liked the design. I also made it, a, it was a presentation about our process. We didn't offer a solution. We heard later that a lot of the competitors offered a solution. We said, it's premature to offer a solution. We must show you how we work. And that showed a sense of willingness to collaborate with them. And that began a three-year relationship with uh, the government of France and uh, the Musée du Louvre to uh, do that project. And this is where you came into contact with Gauguin's journals. That's right. A uh, fantastic day. Uh, one of their kind of uh, the matriarch of their drawing collection took me down into their archives one day and she showed me drawings by Michelangelo that haven't been shown to the public. And uh, We wearing the gloves. I had gloves and all that. And, uh, and then she pulled out this drawer and I had my gloves. She just paged through this and it was this incredible journal by uh, Paul Gauguin that uh, it just brought me to tears. It was so beautiful. And it was also because it was like a voyeuristic experience to kind of like look at something that... It's his diary. It's, it's his diary, you know. So from that standpoint, it was really uh, quite chilling. It's quite good that you knew how to read and speak French. Yeah, it was. It helped. It helped. So did that influence your own journal keeping? Had you already been keeping sketchbooks I'd say journals? off and on, but uh, not as a kind of a 
repository for the range of things that I found interesting and a laboratory, you know, for ideas and exploration. So that really changed your life. It did in a big way because I'm still doing it today. Well, Ken, with all Mm -hmm. due respect, when you say you're still doing it today, it's not Mm -hmm. like you're just sort of doodling in moleskins. Mm -hmm. You create the most extraordinary sketchbooks on the planet. I mean, your sketchbooks are legendary. Can you just describe the current journal you're working Mm -hmm. on? Well, it starts with the, the book itself. You know, it's a, like a six-by-nine book, and it took me a long time to find the right book. And it's actually a very cheap journal. that it, uh, It's made by, by a Paris company, but you can find it in art supply stores, and they're like 10 bucks a piece or something like that. And they have a horrible, horrible-looking cover on them. But it's got great paper. It's laid paper, and it takes all kinds of media. So I can draw on it, I can paint in it, I can collage in it, all that. And it's a weight that, that holds up very well. Plus it has a gilded edge and it has a little uh, ribbon for marking pages. Then I found a great book binder to create some uh, leather jackets for me. So that I now have leather jackets which are made out of a, like a white goat skin. And he taught me how to use leather dye to customize the covers, basically paint and leather dye. So the creation of the journal starts from the cover itself. And so talk about five or six pages in the current journal that you have, just so mm-hmm. our listeners can understand the the depth and the breadth and the diversity that is apparent on these pages. Well, last week I was in a meeting, and the meeting ended sooner than I thought. And uh, so I was in the vicinity of the Morgan Library. So I decided, well, I'll go into the Morgan. I, they always have something great there. I'm a member, etc. So I went in there and I saw a collection of drawings of animals going back to the 16th century. And I always have my fountain pen. I still use a fountain pen. And I just sketched what I saw there. And those are probably the last two pages that I, that I did. It's just uh, a sketch of a cat and then a camel and a bear that I just found fascinating in that exhibit. It's a very personal and quiet thing to do. The world is going at light speed, and I like the kind of solitude and the, the depth of just that kind of exchange. I do that a lot when I'm going to see exhibit because a lot of times you look at a painting for like two seconds and walk away. Sometimes if I spend the time to just, you know, draw a section of it, it slows me down, and I feel like I'm almost having like a conversation with the artist. So my book, the current book, it has, you know, these drawings that I did recently. I also uh, had to do a poster for a speech I gave recently, so I had some sketches in there. Uh, I also did a poster for the AIGA 30th anniversary celebration, and I did a little gouache painting right in the in the sketchbook, and that became the solution for that, and we just blew it up digitally and all that. And I just finished a fantastic book called Art and Fear, and I just filled the pages with quotes from the book. And when I start a new book, I make a reduced color photocopy of the book cover. That becomes my bookmark. And then when I finish the book, I paste that reduced photocopy into my journal, and I write all around it what I thought about that particular book. And I'm not precious about what goes in other than it has to be I have to find some meaning there and something I'm going to enjoy going back to years later. Now, I also understand that you do quite a lot of live figure drawing mm-hmm. uh, with, with models. Do you also do that in your journal? Sometimes. Sometimes if I'm feeling uh, particularly stiff or uncourageous, I'll start out with my journal just because the scale of it is smaller and all that. And uh, I will do it in the journal as kind of an initial sketch of a, of a long pose and then move to a larger sheet. So so how often do you do the live figure drawing? Uh, once a week. 
And I can't imagine that it hasn't influenced the way that you work. But of course, I need to ask, has it influenced and then how? Well, I have been unsuccessful in convincing any of my clients to use a a drawing of a nude on anything. But uh, but what it does do... You still have time. <laughs> but what it does do is that it gives me a moment of pause in an otherwise frenetic life. And it's probably the only thing that I do on a weekly basis where it requires singular and total concentration. And the other great thing about it is within two or three hours, I've made something that's complete. How often as designers, you know, if, if you're doing the kind of work that we do, that you get anything that's done in two or three hours. You know, meetings don't get done in two or three hours. So, <laughs> and the fact that I have something that's finished, I was totally responsible for it, whether it's good or bad. It's all my responsibility. It didn't involve others. It didn't involve committees. It was just, you know, contact with some kind of genetic matter in me that needs to come out in that form. And I think it does help my work. Over the years, I think, you know, where my eyesight is like, uh, starting to fail me in certain ways, it's actually sharp and visual relationships. And I shock my staff every once in a while when I, you know, say we're building a model or something, and I say, well, from here, that two-and-a-half-inch thick shelf is not going to hold up. And they say, well, it's not two-and-a-half inches. And I say, well, go measure it. And they walk over 10 feet, and it's two-and-a-half inches. Somehow, I don't know, it's a magical thing, but it has sharp and visual acuity in a certain way. So you're a real Renaissance man, Ken Carbone. Not only are you a designer... Not only are you an illustrator, not only are you a painter and a keeper and a maker of journals, you're also quite an accomplished musician, and you've probably been practicing music for longer than any of the other disciplines in your life. Well, I would say music came early, piano at age 10, guitar at 13, you know, when the Beatles came along, I obviously, I said, oh, i got to have a guitar. But the, the art and drawing gene is deeper, much deeper. I've been drawing, you know, ever since I can remember. And uh, I remember even the way I used to draw was I I grew up in an Italian-American family, and my uncles would bring me shirt cardboard, and I would draw on the shirt cardboard. Oh, wow. Talk about recycling. Right. (laughs) So I would draw these scenes on this shirt cardboard. And, you know, to this day, I get my shirts laundered. So I can have that shirt cardboard. Really? And yeah. what do you do? Do you still use them? I still them? keep it. It's yeah? a great, you know, it's a great kind of utility thing, you know, that I can use and cut on it. I can draw on it. I can use it as a background. It's, a, you know, it's these things stick with you through life. So. so tell me about the kind of music that you like to play. Well, it's very broad, but I think it always comes back to blues and jazz. Mm-hmm. Even though I may be listening and right now, you know, I, I love Nora Jones. I kind of uh, like Lana Del Rey. I, you, know, you do? I, you like Lana Del Rey? Yeah, in small doses. Okay. Uh, but it always kind of comes back to blues and jazz. And probably because my own abilities on, on the guitar are, the, I'm an untrained guitarist. You know, I really never studied. So you learn, do you know how to read music? Do you know how to? Poorly. No, poorly. Poorly. But I have a good ear. Uh, I played in bands uh, through high school and college, you know, cover bands. So it was, you know, the Led Zeppelin and the yeah, Beatles yeah. and, you know, those kinds of things. I'm more of an ensemble player, but I've always played lead guitar. And I'm continually and constantly, I should say, composing. And the music has found its absolutely right place in my life. For a while there, certainly in the second year of college, it was a real debate because I was still in a working band. I was making money in a band going to college, and I had to make a decision. Is it this design thing that I've recently discovered, or is it this music thing? And they were equally demanding. 
And I, it wasn't a flip of the coin, but I really thought about it deeply and said, well, you know, I've kind of been into this art thing and design thing, or art thing certainly, much longer. And that's, I think that's more in me than the music is. So I'd quit the band and decided to uh, say, okay, I'm really going to focus on my studies and develop this design skill. Do you ever regret the decision? Never. Never. Because I have the music with me. It's, now it has its perfect place. It's just there for sheer enjoyment. I don't have to make money on it. I, don't have, I just love playing, and it's a great other artistic release, which uh, is greatly satisfying. Will you play us something? I will. Carbone, and to see some of Ken's extraordinary sketchbooks, head over to YouTube and search for Curiously Curious. To see his work at Carbone Smolin, go to www.carbonesmolin.com, and you can read all of his magnificent writing at Fast Company. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Randy Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.